All right, so good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, folks. Welcome to Karate Without Belts. I am John, and joined for the first time, and hopefully not the last, by my my friend all the way from the UK. That's correct. Jer! Hi, everybody. It's Jared O'D here. Nice to be with you. Nice to talk to John. Where, exact, where exactly are you coming from, Jer? Are you I'm about in... a, Yeah, I'm about an hour from London right now, so... Um, in England, and okay. uh, yeah, about 25 miles from London. Jer has been a... I will introduce Jer as this. He is the guy in the room who gets what's going on. <laughs> he is the guy. He is... I met him about six years ago, and he walks in the room, and he doesn't say a whole lot, but you can just tell by like maybe the first couple of sentences in a, in a conversation, he knows exactly what's going on. Um, he, his ability to kind of read, read situations and um, kind of figure out what's going, going on in a room uh, not only spills over from his business, but is also his martial arts. So we brought him on today, and we're going to talk about probably a variety of things. One of the oh, best definitely. feedbacks I got was like, I had to listen to 27 minutes of your podcast just for you to get to a point. I'm like, yes, yes, you did. <laughs> um, but we're going to talk about, um, so Jared, tell us a little what you do in your day job. Uh, so my day job since about 2006 has been uh, teaching anybody who faces uh, aggression or violence at work how to manage those situations in the most professional way they can. So um, <clears throat> that we teach across three kind of key domains. That's uh, de-escalating people who are getting upset verbally. So that's how to talk to somebody so they don't explode. Um, when and then the second domain is when you're standing in front of that person, you need to have consideration for your personal safety. So while you're talking them down, you need to be you know managing your proximity, looking at. Um, what might happen next and how you'd respond to that. And then, of course, if that thing does happen, you've got to protect yourself physically. So that's the second domain. And then the third domain that we teach across is actually situations where you have to reach into a situation and take hold of somebody and, you know, immobilize them for their own safety or for the safety of the people around them. So that's a topic called restraint. You know, control and restraint is kind of an old uh, word for that. So in my day job, I meet, you know, education or healthcare or social care professionals who might have to do those three things while they're at work. Right. And those those people need it the most. Mm -hmm. They might be going to a karate class twice a week or something like or necessarily have that kind of training um, because their training is in what their job is, being a social care worker, or healthcare professional, but that doesn't necessarily require martial arts. So definitely, and and often, what's interesting with that, John, is that I'll often meet somebody on my course who does do karate twice a week, or jujitsu, or they did judo, but they've never actually thought about or had any training to put those two worlds together. So twice a week, they go and put their pajamas on. And that, that's my, that's my, you know, stinging uh, euphemism for going to, to a traditional karate class, for example. And, oh, no, um, we've lost half our audience. Yeah. Um, and they, they'll practice in a traditional context and they'll do all the traditional things, you know, traditional inverted commas. 
Um, but then when they go to work and they face people who are violent, they, they don't necessarily have a bridge between those two worlds. Um, and why would they? Well, I mean, there's lots of reasons for that. But, I mean, it, it brings up this point, and I, you, you illustrated it beautifully, that traditional martial arts, though, can teach really, really good technique. They don't necessarily account for real world. Um, and I think in recent years, there have been very good attempts mind you, attempts to bridge these things. And there have been, you know, I think there's a group of people in the traditional martial arts community who recognize this, but don't know what to do about it. And then there's another group of people in the mar traditional martial arts community who said, who basically say, forget that nonsense. You just do your traditional training and it will just come out. And I think both tend to not understand why there needs to be a practical aspect in there. One understands that, oh, this is important, but we'll kind of put it on the side for sometimes. Uh, the other side doesn't think it's important at all. So, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, we we what we know about the the evidence the evidence base for training and practice tells us um, the answers to the questions you just posed, which is. Can can um, training in a in a traditional context in a in a room with a polished wood floor with all of the cultural trappings that are that come along with traditional martial arts can that transfer over to a live situation in the back of an ambulance where you know there's there's no polished wood floor there's furniture everywhere the ambulance there's, is moving yeah. there's yeah there's it's a confined space and all of that. And um, only certain aspects of that will transfer across. Uh, and of course, it's some, to some extent, it's individual dependent. But um, I, I would say that that's a pretty complex question. But you know, not not a lot of the stuff from the traditional context will, will come across. In fact, here's an interesting one. I think you and I could talk about this. Is I think mm -hmm. one of the things that would transfer across best is the kind of mental focus and the grit and determination and perseverance that somebody might bring to a situation, right. which would mirror some of the situations that they may have been put in to in the dojo. But to think that the tech, the technical aspects of what they're learning would transfer across, hmm, that's a different question. Well, that's right. I mean, you can't necessarily do a throw in, a, in the back of a movie ambulance, like unless you're going to throw somebody out the window. Um, okay which you end up falling out of anyway, because that's how gravity works, Hollywood. Right. Uh, but I, that, is, that is a great point that some, we don't talk about that a lot too, where if you're, if you're doing any sort of physical training, um, traditional martial arts or otherwise, that you will end up building up a kind of a mental callus to pain, to trauma, to kind of stress, stress, stressful situations um, in some way. But you're not necessarily going to be able to move your body the way you want to. And it does, it does stand to reason that that's not the context those styles or any, any particular traditional martial arts necessarily thinks they're going to be in. Yeah, it's true. I mean, like, you know, one of the things that my company is becoming more known for is the the degree to which we make our training fit the exact circumstances that the worker might be in. So like right. that, you know, 
for example, you know, so many, let's just use the example of the ambulance workers, the, the paramedics. A lot of those guys would be taught defensive tactics or breakaway skills. We call them in a classroom, um, far away from the actual vehicle that they work with. Now, when we go to do the training, we say, you know, okay, if we're going to train your team, we need a garage, you know, we need a, a building with a cover over it so that we can put the ambulance underneath. So we'll take your team to the ambulance. We'll then work out what the scenarios are and we will work through them in situ. You know, we call it in, in vivo, right? In reality. Right. Um, not at any level of intensity necessarily, but that's another question. But the fact is, if there are certain problems that the staff will need to solve around the specific environment they're going to be in, then we, you know, we, we try and incorporate that into the training. So let me, if I could bridge that over to the traditional or what I refer to as the, the classical martial arts training problem or, right. or how that might have been run. And I think, you know, the proverbial grandpa in Okinawa um, teaching his grandson in the back garden, I think one of the first things they're going to do is they're going to sit down and say, okay, uh, here are some of the ways that bad things might happen to you and let's work through the problems. So I, I actually think there was far more kind of scenario-specific teaching going on in the back gardens, in the family-based martial arts, than, than any kind of just simple rote learning of kata. You know, I think the image we have of the grandpa making his grandson go through a kata for three years before ever teaching him what he was doing, I don't buy it. Okay, now we're attracting some fire, but that's fine. Um, no, I mean, I agree. I I agree with that. That I think you, I have done that with people actually, where I've sat down and said, "All right, this is you know one of the things I've learned was you know there's a certain number of ways someone's going to attack you, and I and I tend to and when I start to teach anyone, I tend to tell them, okay." We need to think about this from a practical perspective because this is this is primarily something we use for self-defense. Or when we use in, in what situations could you be grabbed in? What situations could you be struck in? What situations would somebody grab you? Right? You got to think about where, what directions they're coming from and why. Um, and I think in that case, if people can think about that, then you can kind of add, they have that seed planted where it's not just doing exercises or doing kata or doing this or that uh, you know they're 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 able to think about it uh, we were talking about this in regards to testing basically trying to engineer people not engineer people but give people kind of the engineering skills to work their way out of situations um when it comes to testing rather than just being like do the kata all right great job here's a here's a bell mm -hmm. so i mean Bring that over to traditional martial arts, and I think I think if that was the OG martial art, was we need to figure out how to deal with the situation. How does that get lost on traditional martial arts? If that's the re if that was kind of what how it started in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, again, how it started in the beginning. I think the really interesting thing for us as we look into those issues is what was the context you know 
that and the context probably was, and it's one of my favorite things to reflect on. You know, before the era of antibiotics and medical technology, if you were jumped in the middle of the night on your way home from the uh, the party district, let's say, right. and and somebody managed to gouge you with an object, so you, they they split your skin and opened you up. Um, the implications medically could, could have been really quite extreme. So, right, the idea being in a minor bust up these days, where you you know somebody um, somebody you know scratched you or something like that. That that these days, because we can fix it, and because we have the medical technology to to beat infections and so on. Um, it's just not a big deal, but going back 400 years, if, you know, if you got scratched or nicked by something on a dirty road, I think the implications of that were more severe. So, uh, I think the martial arts context, the, the skills had to be really dependable. Right. And, and that's what I mean about, you know, if you go back to the context, when the granddad sat down with his grandson to teach him martial arts, I think they had to be very practical, super practical. So what you're saying is we need to take, take traditional martial arts and put it in a modern context. Um, no, no, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying that Ooh. we need to keep it, in a, keep it in a box. I think to an extent you need to look at the traditional classical model and then keep it there, um, and and then in, and then, if you really want to learn self defense, as you mentioned, there's there's lots of models out there that we can go to now, which are based on modern principles and scientific evidence that we know about now. Um, and yes, there will be crossovers. So in my own practice, I enjoy uh, discovering those crossovers, but I don't try and force them. Okay. So, so martial arts and, and doing, I don't know, for example, wor working at, working out the, I guess a, if I can if I can give a situation, mm. uh, mental health patient, just not not having a good day, and the word the word or whatever having to try to restrain them, that word also goes into a traditional Goju class. That guy does his goju, and that guy does what you're doing and do, doing with him. But they don't. But they shouldn't cross over. Well, mo most uh, well, it's funny you mentioned goju. As far as I can tell, has a lot of um, you know gripping and gouging and arm breaking and smashing of people. And for that reason, you you really don't want a nurse in a mental health ward doing those things. So there are legal and regulatory boundaries on what that nurse can do. Right. So that just creates a natural separation in those groups of tactics. So if I could illustrate what I meant earlier, which is, you know, one of the um, one of the things we're aware of is what well, you know when it, when you and I watch a video of um, Taiko Yata doing something amazing uh, and reading his, his book. One of the things you discover is that he values the automatic responses in the body, the automatic protective responses in the body. Right. So there's a part of one of his books where he talks about swatting flies. Right. That your hands should move like you're swatting a fly or, or a, a wasp that's come at you. 
and I'm paraphrasing there, but but across the other side of this bridge, I you know when I go to teach a group of healthcare staff how to protect themselves from somebody who might be trying to hit them, we immediately go to what we refer to as instinctive protection drills, where we try and bring out their their body's hardwired protective responses. Okay. So what what I'm saying there is. That's obviously an idea that goes a lot goes goes back a long way, right? Um, and it's obviously an idea. I would suggest it's an idea that has real merit. But um, hands up, hands up, hands up is almost I think for anybody yeah. who, training or no natural response. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. How you might Sorry. present that in those two different environments might be slightly different. That's all. Right. Now, is there now? Do you think there's a way you can kind of bridge? you could kind of bridge the two. So going back to our example of the ward who's doing Goju-Ryu, how might he best, best, I guess, hone his skills in Goju-Ryu or hone his skills or her skills, whatever they're doing, but at the same time, understand when to, when to use whatever they need to do in their jobs and what the line is where they need to, need to do something else. Well, now we're into a discussion about practice, you know, right. self-efficacy. Um, so, um, practice, practice in terms of training, practice should be designed with a functionality in mind, right? So, performance and learning. Um, so, usually, you should be trying to practice something so that you can you can perform that skill at a high level when it's needed. That's right probably a reasonable definition of practice so um um i think you know in a goju in a, in a karate dojo you you should have the scenarios you're training for in mind and then in professional level training you have different scenarios in mind so when probably most people when they're in a dojo thinking about self-defense they're thinking about stranger danger and being approached by somebody in a street who wants to rob them or something like that, which is a, a valid enough scenario for them to think about. Um, and that's probably what you should be working on if you're working on your own self-protection. But on the other hand, if you then put on your nurse's uniform and you go to work, the scenarios you're meeting are totally different because even though the person in front of you might be trying to hurt you, they are a vulnerable person by definition. And so right. you can't take your take your uh, take your two fingers and, and stick them straight in their eye, in the same no. way you might you might do in, in a dark car park somewhere um, when you're approached on your own. So, yeah, practice and scenario specific things. Okay. Um, would you say there's there needs to be a conscious effort to make sure those things are separate? Yeah, totally. I mean. You, you should always start with what's the scenario if you're doing well it depends on what because, kind of practice you're doing i mean we've got kata practice which is done on your own um right. we've got um drills and exercises to develop um balance speed coordination and that but then ultimately those things should lead you to uh some kind of high fidelity scenarios where you're actually practicing the target skill in a, in a target context. 
I don't, I don't know if you want me to dig into those things in, in, yeah, in a bigger I think, way. But I, I think that that's works. what we generally miss out on. I can remember st standing in a kitchen with you and with a bunch of kind of law enforcement guys standing around us. And uh, I was just explaining about a video I'd seen where this, this police officer got out of his car, he got into an interaction with somebody, and the guy uh, pushed him back against his car and bent him over backwards, pushing him onto the bonnet of his car. Can I say that? The hood? The bonnet? The hood? I don't know who's listening to this. The hood of his car. Wait, so you're talking about and, the front uh, of the car? Not the back Yeah, the, of the front car. of the car. Not the back, no. The front of the car. The bit Damn over it. the engine. Yeah. Um, so he bends him over that, and he starts pummeling him, right? Uh, so he's got one hand on his chest, pushing him down onto it, and he's got his dominant right hand, and he's pounding him. And I just looked around the room at the time. We were standing in a kitchen, probably drinking beer. And um, Were we? And I said, yeah. One of us was jet lagged at this point. Okay. Probably, yeah. I think at this, this time it was probably both. But anyway, continue. So this police officer bent over backwards on this, the front of this car being beaten up. And I just looked at the assembled guys. And I said, isn't that amazing? I mean, how many times in his career has he, has he, or in his training and his practice, has he purposefully bent himself over backwards onto the front of an object in such a, a poor posture and thought to himself, how can I protect myself here? How can I use all of my karate skill that I've developed? How would it c come together? And in fact, even better than that, not just me standing here thinking about it. Hey, John, come here. Bend me over this car and then start hitting me in the head and let's work it out. And that, that I think is what's, that's, that's what's made my training really exciting and interesting over the years because we've always looked for those spaces. Okay. We've always looked for those things. That, where would I be most vulnerable? When would be the worst time to get me? When, when would I feel like I, I wouldn't have any tools in my toolbox for this situation? And wherever those spaces appeared, we went there. Um, and that's been really interesting and exciting. So were you talking earlier about the creative problem solving? It's like, well, why leave that to the moment when the bad thing happens? Let's use our training time and our practice time to find where those bad things are and then and then do the problem solving now and then bring that practice up to a high intensity so we've actually practiced it. And I'm telling you, when, when you walk out of the gym or dojo after a session like that, you, you, you respect the situation a lot more, but you also probably gain some confidence. And, and that's probably a good example of the kinds of things I'm talking about in terms of scenarios. Right. And, you know, a lot of people say, train the way you fight, fight the way you train, right? Generally, that kind of, that comes into hitting the bag context or, you know, doing the kata really hard context or uh, doing the drilled scenario, or not the drilled scenario, but just whatever, the yakusoku really hard or whatever. Um, maybe doing kumite really hard. And that's all well and good, but this is a part of training not enough karateka really dig, dig their teeth into. Um, mm. Can you dig your teeth into something? You sink your teeth into something. And getting into, getting, when you get into something, um, they don't really get into this. Uh, and I guess what, kind of bridging from, you know, what you do from your work and what you do in the dojo and kind of bringing that maybe into the dojo is thinking, how would... Going back to what I said between the traditional guy who doesn't want to do doesn't want to touch this at all, and the traditional guy who has really well intentioned view on this but doesn't know what he's doing, 
how might you get these two groups to kind of hone one convincing the one guy to actually do it and two bringing the other guy down and being like all right this is how you have to look at it how might we approach that well um that's a really good question i'm not really prepared for it i have to say it's it's um you know, one of the things I, I, I go back to all the time is, is a book by a couple of people, but one of the, the authors on there is called Doug Lemov, and it's called Practice Perfect, 42 right. Rules for Getting Better at Getting Better. Um, You've talked to me about this. And um, it, like, it, what it does is it, it summarizes a lot of the things we know about how people learn, how we should design learning, um, what practice should look like, how we can arrange practice better to, to get better learning performance. And um, that, that's, I think that if I was going to urge people to move in a certain direction, it would be to look at what, what we know scientifically, i.e. with an evidence base, produces good learning. And I think from getting involved in that study, you would, as a responsible coach or dojo owner or sensei, you know, pick your pick your uh, moniker for that. As a responsible coach, you would start to alter your practices to achieve your aims. Uh, here's an interesting one. I told you about this when we, we talked earlier. Is uh, I recently decided to take, I've got a small children's class that I teach on Saturday mornings now, and my kids and a, and a couple of other kids. It just so happens that there's a cluster of nine-year-old girls in this class, about four or five of them on the mat. And um, two weekends ago, yeah, it, well, it, it's been really interesting to watch them and their, their attitudes to um, fighting and contact and hurting each other and, and throwing people on the floor and, and not saying sorry each time. It's been really interesting to watch that because yeah, it's teaching kids is a very new thing for me, just for anybody listening. My, you know, my entire, my entire, uh, you know, several decades in martial arts has been probably uh, since I was a kid anyway, has been involved in, you know, being around adults and adult learners. But teaching kids recently, I decided to show them how to do WKF Kumite, you know, that sort of tag thing. Right, right, right. And, Not um, really full contact type deal. But. No. So I taught them how to do a lead jab. I taught them how to do a reverse punch. And I showed them what a round kick looked like. I'm a washigiri. And, right. uh, and I taught them to bounce around. And I taught them to wave their hands in a particular way. And I told them that was a parry. That took me 30 minutes, and then we, then we practiced it for another 30 minutes. And by the end of it, and maybe this, this will be another inflammatory comment, but by the end of it, I looked at them and I thought, great, they now have the framework. They just need to get better at all of the things that they are doing. So, so I didn't spend six months teaching them how to do a reverse punch before I let them do Kumite. Does that make sense? No, that makes that, I mean. Young minds well, absorb. Makes, yeah. So I showed them what, and this, this, goes, this goes quite deep into the, the, the theory of practice and so on, which I've been working on with a colleague of mine, Professor Chris Cushion at Loughborough University. And he would say, you've got to show people the entire thing you want them to get good at first. You've got to show okay. them the entire task, the whole task, and then you can, get, you can get them better at all the different components that you know about because you're the coach. But I think, and certainly I see this in my professional life, but we see it in dojo kind of environments as well, is where you, um, 
you have people practice individual chunks of learning for long periods of time before you show them what it all looks like when it's put together. And that's kind of intuitive because we want them to get good at that and then go to the next thing and get good at that and then go to the next thing. That's kind of an intuitive coaching model, but it's not how people learn best. Okay. What, what do you think the science is behind that? How do you think, I mean, because I could, I've, I've experienced a little bit of both in, in terms of my martial arts experience where, you know, the first thing I think I learned was getting into stance and throwing kicks. Like, hardly learned punching prior to that. Um, the fact you took, I'm assuming all these kids were beginners or that maybe had yeah, a little yeah. bit. They're, but, no, they're all pure beginners. So you took the, this like little group of beginners and you just showed them punch, punch, kick. Um, yep. And watching it, it's not easy to get off. Like as the first thing, is not necessarily easy to get off. Um, oh, and they look. I mean, and their their mawashigaris look horrible, but they're trying them. And they're nine years they're old, Jared. Give them a break. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's. I mean, they they can catch. So you, it also is that you have they have a framework to work mm -hmm. from, but it can a super complex one. Yep. They're not learning Goju Shiho on the first day. Yeah, and I think, you know, I haven't yet settled on how Kata fits into that model, um, which is interesting. And I know when I ask the professor uh, about doing solo movements to improve um, performance in a an open context. So when you read the sports science, you know the difference between an open and a closed context? Uh, explain, so, explain it for people who don't, don't know. Okay, so uh, golf, golf is exa an example of a closed environment from a sports point of view, a performance point of view, because it's just you and your golf club and the golf ball, and that you, you are the only person influencing performance. Um, okay. In contrast to that is an open environment, and that would be a football game. You know, they, they're round version or the 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 oval version which whichever type of football you're into Look, my, uh, philadelphia and we were the world champions of american football okay in, uh, 2018 world champions of american football there's only one football <laughs> game. the other one's soccer but i've realized for other people in the world it's different but regardless you're so, open open context an, an open environment because there's another team playing against you and they right. will mess up your carefully organized plans to win. So uh, if I ask you a question, you know, fighting, defending yourself, is that open or closed environment? Open. It's open because you've got an opponent who's trying to hurt you, for example. So um, kata then becomes an anomaly in that because how can you get better at an open skill? in a closed environment. And so I'm not saying that it's not worthwhile or valuable, but I think we have some work to do to explain that in, in terms of what we now know about, you know, coaching and learning and how to get better at a target skill. You know, there's some great stories in um, Practice Perfect about the incredibly successful tennis academy in Russia, where all of the Russian tennis stars come out of, and they don't give the kids uh, tennis balls for the first six months. The kids just swing, like in a big group, 
You know that picture of all the karate people in front of Shuri Castle from way yes. back, you know, the black and white? So, so they have a bunch of kids not on tennis courts, you know, outside the front of this place because they've only got like four courts or something. It's a, a very rundown and, and badly resourced place where they produce champion tennis players. But um, the best way to do it. Yeah. But they, um, they have all these kids lined up practicing their forehand shots with no tennis balls. And they do that with them for weeks on end with the coach standing by saying that one needs to go a little bit higher. You need to follow through more on your swing. And that's like totally interesting to me. I haven't come to any conclusions about it, but obviously it's a solo, solo practice, just like a kata that has um, all kinds of um, physical, um, physical measurements around it you know you you should do it this way not that way you know that there's a measurable you're doing it right or you're doing it wrong and so that's fascinating but again i I haven't haven't come to any conclusions about well uh, jeremy's not here tonight but i'm going to pull out the adult diaper here and say it depends so not to say that he he uses them um i have somebody in my family who does so i gotta make that joke um I think it's how we also look at, at kata. Um, uh, older um, karateka um, had told me he'd been trained trained for a long, 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 long time, um, and he had he had he was really adamant about like you need to train kata like you are fighting someone, and and we've all heard it before, but he was super adamant about like. You've got to train kind of hard and you've got to make it like you are going to rip someone's head off. And like in comparing that to Kumite, where you can't do that in Kumite because in Kumite, you've got to see the guy in the next day, next class. So if you rip his head off today, you're not going to want to see him tomorrow. So it, it, there's some interesting things that spin out of that because is caught the begs the question is Kata the drill that does all that or is it something that that is as i i've always seen it as kind of a library that you can train on so it's like a gym and a library kind of together a a jibrary if you will um where you can you can train on it and do all the physical stuff but ultimately it's where you have to do study and then bring that study out into practice which are three different things that's really interesting. I mean, I I was terribly frustrated by one of your initial questions today, which I which I have been asking myself for many years, which is, how do I do this? Do I look in the kata for the techniques, right, or or do I do it the other way around? And of course, I I totally abandoned my karate practice for at least five years, not so long ago. Really. Before I met you, yeah, before I met you, like, like when I met you in 2014, I was coming back to karate, but I totally abandoned it. I didn't do a single kata for years. So maybe I did, but I, I wasn't practicing uh, routinely. And the reason was it was just frustrating the life out of me. And, and But at that time, I was teaching self-protection tactics and doing all this scenario-based work in, um, in a gym in, in Edinburgh. Well, I was there four or five times a week teaching privates and teaching groups teaching all female groups um, and lots of different things and doing seminars. And um, 
what eventually started to strike me was that as we were working through various scenarios, if I had it in mind to just pause every now and then and take a look at my posture, I would go, well, wow, there it is. There's that posture. And, and there's that movement. And this, is, this feels a bit like when you do that motion and that kata. And so instead, you know, there, there's still a question, of course, but what I found far more fulfilling was to investigate the scenarios, work the scenarios, you know, those, those spaces of difficulty that I mentioned earlier. Right. And then what I'm doing those is to just keep in mind that I'm moving my body and I, I'm trying to move my body efficiently. And every now and then I'd pass through one of those snapshots from a kata, or I'd, I'd pass through one of those movements and just note it and really enjoy that moment. Um, so compared to what you said just a moment ago about practicing the kata and trying to find the gems that are in there, I was doing it the other way around. And I'm not hmm. saying one is right or one isn't correct or whatever, but there's many Why paths to the mountain. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think it's what you just said there is, I think, what not, not a lot of people kind of get to, where it's that you have to kind of. Some people say it's by intuition, and some people, like, I, I highly disagree with, with this, where it's that kata, you do kata long enough, and then the technique will just come out, like Karate Kid 3. And that's that, hogwash. Yes, it is. Just, and can I, should I be a bit more di diplomatic about that? I'm not being no. it, so... <laughs> no, that's hogwash. The idea that some technique will magically appear uh, unless you've been doing tons of partner practice, it's, 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 a, it's an untruth. Well, and, and that's the thing. Like, it, you can... But I think, to a degree, there's intuition of, of kind of figure out, like, hey, this is like that. Hey, it's designed this way for that reason. Hey. But you don't... Those aren't those lessons aren't always immediately available because mm, yes. karate is social, but karate is also personal. So mm -hmm. you kind of have to like, that's the way martial arts is. It's this weird, you need other people, but you need, you, you ultimately need to go back on yourself to, to engage with other people. Um, so you always need to go back to, you know, okay, is this intuition right? And then test that out and then test that out against all those different scenarios how that war you just work those scenarios and figure out how the kata fits in and kind of i think i think it goes both ways probably yeah probably um you know going back to um i mean the, one of my big bugbears here is is partner practice right so you know I started karate when I was eight years old and practiced it until into my teens, whereupon Steven Seagal was on the TV quite a lot. And uh, I thought what he was doing looked pretty cool. So I, I dropped my karate and I went to study Aikido all the way through my teens and into my early 20s, and including in Japan. Um, and I was never very good at Aikido, but I enjoyed it tremendously. Um, I, and then in the meantime, I also, when I was at university down in Osaka, Kobe, I did uh, quite an intensive period of time studying Shorinji Kempo. You know, at age 19, 20, I did about six months of that training. I think I calculated like training like eight times a week, eight sessions a week. And um, 
Yeah, I was very sore. I was very sore, but I was also 19, so I was able to, you know, manage it. Um, but, uh, and, and through, in the middle of all that, I, I was introduced and exposed to Filipino martial arts and, you know, all sorts of different things, right? But right. there's only one, there's one thing that stands out completely, and that is um, every other martial art in the world uh, incorporates partner practice as the primary practice. Ooh, well, that might be. I think. Yeah, you know that's 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 not that's not inaccurate. Um, except, except, sorry, you, you have some Chinese systems that we see, you know, that are still like in, around today. But I think Chinese martial arts is the same problem as Okinawan martial arts is in that the golden era is long in the distant past, and so the right. idea that what we're looking at today is how they practiced four hundred years ago is is not true, right? But if you look at any of the Japanese martial arts or the Filipino martial arts, for example, or, you know, Silat from any of the, the Indonesian archipelago or anything like that, they, um, they do tons of partner practice and they do tons of complex partner practice at that. You know, so when we look at the kinds of partner practices that came out of the Funakoshi era in Japan, those are incredibly simplistic partner practices um, compared to some of the things that are going on in in um, other martial arts that you might look at. So for me, for me, you know, you have to be partnered, practicing with a partner, and so you have to have some kind of curriculum for that. Right. And, and I think that's something that karate's always fall, fallen behind in to a de degree. And I think that's that that that's kind of out of just. But we've had lots of conversations about this, where it was, yeah. where how do you build the curriculum to match both kata and that? And do you have to import stuff from other places to make that work? Because, you know, I remember, because we're getting into background, I guess, um, when I was training initially it was really really karate heavy and like they were trying to mix in uh guys i originally trained with like try to mix in like other stuff and from here and there like anyone else and then like our niece became the thing we did and oh, okay. like slowly dialed out um and then there was a big fight about that whatever but what i learned in that was a kind of different movement and a kind of different way of how to like deal with you know that really was my partner practice that was really where i got that partner practice out of uh -huh. because how they were how they were transmitting the karate that they knew and how they were and how they were practicing was very just okay there's technique do it done okay one off okay there's technique do it done okay one off and there wasn't so much of like even uh I had the very, very fortunate uh, chance to do some uh, long fist uh, praying mantis kung fu over the summer with uh, some folks from Taiwan, and they had you know just back and forth partner skill development drills. Yes. And uh, very basic, um, and it looked like a lot of uh, the techniques kind of looked almost similar to our niece, and then looked similar to some of the Okinawan, some of the Okinawan real Okinawan karate drills that I'd seen. So I think, you know, a lot of this stuff looks similar. 
I think. Um, should we import or do we need to create? Do we need to do a little bit of both? Well, the, the part of the answer to that question, I think, comes back to something which is like, what, what's, the, what's the functional performance we're looking for? Mm. And you, you, re, you, you, re, you engineer your practice then out of what the functional goal you're looking for is. And so if, if, what, if what your people need to be able to do is to protect their head from being struck, uh, that's a pretty good goal. Then yeah. you will, you know, if, if that's the goal you set at the end of the line, that your, your people are good at protecting, you know, parrying, blocking, ducking, um, mitigating impact to the head, then you, you'll probably come up with some practices that are effective for that. And then at the end of that journey, not having looked sideways at what everybody else is doing, when you, when you come up with some practices that actually achieve that goal, I think when you lift your head and look around, you're going to see similarities with what everybody else figured out in terms of protecting their head as well. And you can do that for, for different things. So if you need to, you know, some of the other tasks that we might look at are, I need to put somebody on the floor. Um, when I hit the person, they reach out and grab me by, the, by my lapel. I've got to deal with that. I've got to peel them off. So, so the tasks become the central idea. Or what do I need to be able to do? And then you'll evolve. And I think that's why we see all the variation across Southeast Asia is that you, you'll see. And even, you know, even when we look at the German and Italian manuals of hand-to-hand -hand combat from the 1500s and whatever. You know, there's only so many ways to twist somebody up and drop them and right. and, and impact them. So um, the thing that unites them all is the the aim. And, and the, that's, I think, where we get a bit confused because sometimes we import things because they look cool or we import things because we think we need them. And I think what you're seeing now, of course, everybody's doing, and it's quite a healthy thing, everybody's doing some groundwork. Everybody's doing BJJ or some variation of something like that. It's a big thing these days. Yeah, everybody's doing it. Yeah. Just seeing like, oh, we're doing BJJ now. I just got my blue belt in BJJ. It's like, yeah. When did that happen? Yeah. Um. But again, people. But people are losing the objective. And and what's your objective? Is it to become? Is it to win gold medals at at competition competitive BJJ competitions, or is it to be able to get up off the floor if somebody knocks you down? Um. Or is able to manage somebody if they fall on top of you. So, so again, coming back to that functional idea is that well, what what are you aiming for, and what should you be doing to to make that happen? Oh, I mean, that's, certainly that's... collecting thirty five kata and memorizing them all, and not really understanding what's going on inside them, or, or doing much partner practice. I don't know what that person's doing. Maybe doing some like competitions, but we're not. I'm yep. not going to take a shot at that necessarily because that can motivate people to train harder. But no, that's that's not inaccurate. Um, I think I think that really puts the bu the button on this because it's you know what are you, not just what are you doing, but how can you how can you make the goal of your train? How can you goal your training? Because some people, I think, don't think it's just the goal of karate is karate itself. Yeah, yeah that's that's true. But if you you need to be able to make it work, and how many times have you heard karate doesn't work? Well, you know, I I'm fine with karate not working if that's 
if if the person who's learning it or the person I'm teaching it to understands that. So I think the only problem I have with the different ways that karate is practiced and trained and taught is, you know, we see it all the time. You know, we see um, we see the self-defense benefit marketed to people. Right. But when you look at the program, that's not what they're teaching. And to me, that's just a problem of what the truth. Um, and the truth is, you know, a lot of these programs don't teach people to protect themselves. I mean, one of the reasons, just going back to history again, one of the reasons I moved from karate to Aikido is that, you know, I was a, a point fighter um, at age sort of 11, 12, 13, 14. I was a point fighter. I was a pretty good one. Have some national titles from that time. I mean, woohoo, right? It's a long time ago now. Right. But um, at 14, I was getting in a couple of uh, scuffles with other teenagers. And, you know, that's the period of time when you have a couple of fights, right? And um, the point fighting was really getting in my way because uh, all the practice I was doing was to not hit the other person. Just think about that for a sec. You know, every time I threw a reverse punch or a mawashigeri, I, was, I would be penalized if I made too hard contact. So all my practice at that time was to pull, pull the punch, pull the kick. And that's, you know, anybody involved in WKF or, you know, Olympic style karate these days will, will have the same issue. Um, that all of their practice will be um, oriented around not actually creating any impact or damage with the techniques they're using, right? So, hmm. you know, can we see where the problem is? Like, you're not learning self-defense. You're, you're, you're definitely learning to move your body. You're becoming fast. You could even, you know, you're becoming fast and coordinated and you can manage your balance and you can do amazing things. But let's be clear, almost none of that uh, transfers to a street fight in a dark alley. So, so I'm fine with karate not being about self-defense, if that's how somebody's teaching it. Right. But, I, but I, I'd rather people were clear about what they're doing. Well, there, that also might just be a case of going back to our two friends, the traditional guy and the guy who wants to make things practical but doesn't know what they're doing. Yeah. That traditional guy might think his tradition is that exactly that and think that is being very convinced. I've seen this where people think that this, this will save you in the street. And then their guy gets beat up and then you say, you need to train harder. And that's not the reason why there's other reasons. And honestly, I think if you just tweak it a little, like you were saying, you're taught to pull back. But if you're not taught to pull back, and then you've got three effective weapons. Mm -hmm. So, but of course, yeah, don't teach this to your group of nine-year-olds. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's been interesting, actually, trying to come up with uh, fun things for them to do that are also functional in a pinch. And so we've been doing a lot of kind of wrestling and clinch work with them, which um, I think are appropriate things for five, six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds to do if they're being bullied in a playground. That are not going to get us all in in huge trouble, you know. Yeah, it's not that it's not that time. Of the uh, the world has changed in that in that regard, where we can't teach where we can't teach the kids to be like, I couch. Yeah. So. Well, I yeah, think I mean, put... there's an interesting there's an interesting moment there as well, where you know when you sit down to teach a kids class you, again. When I did that a couple of months ago, I had to sit down and go, right, well, what do I want them to be able to do? 
So I didn't look to a curriculum necessarily. I didn't look to a particular style of martial art or anything like that. I just thought, right, I want them to enjoy themselves. I want to have tons of fun. I want them to be moving a lot. And and what are the functional bits I want to be able to do? And and that's what led my curriculum uh, for them, which kind of evolves on a weekly basis. But again, it just goes back to that thing. It's like, what do I want them to be better at after they've done a class with me? Uh, um, that's been that's been quite an interesting journey. I think that's what a lot of team instructors gotta coalesce a lot of ways. And you just when you let curriculum lead instruction rather than instruction lead curriculum, that's where you end up just being like, well, where are you doing? What are you doing on the belt system? Like, it, it, we're where you are on the chart. Yeah, that's that's good in some ways, but I mean, you're not actually engaging with them practically. So if you're not doing that, then you're not. You're not doing what you're saying you're doing. Mm. So. Cool. Well, I think we, we have dug into this topic like in all kind of its different facets, and we could certainly go on, I think, for hours on end on this. And in fact, I think we have at least one, once or twice. Um, Definitely. <laughs> but um, I think for our purposes here, uh, you know, do you have anything, anything you want to close with on this? Not really. I mean, there's just so much to talk about. Um, but uh, yeah, as I said to you before we started today, kind of practice is is where my professional interests are right now. We're, we're trying to figure out how to teach people the best and most functional things we can in very short time frames. Um, and uh, then in my sort of other life, uh, my, my my own practice of karate, I, it's a long, it's a long road. And so the, the, the different kinds of practice that happen on the long road are interesting to me. So it's been nice to talk to you. Uh, yeah. It's good to, to offload some of the, uh, the, the uh, ideas sometimes, isn't it? Just test, test, test them yeah. out, see how they sound. And look, it, it, as I like to tell people is like, conversations are good to have and it's good to make them public because we're having a conversation. We're not like, these are the seven points we're gonna hit today, folks. Like, it, it, it's kind of not my goal. My goal mm -hmm. is to grab to these ideas and to try to get people to, to think about them. So we have thinking karateka. Um, sometimes we end up having people, I love the I love the comments when they're just like, karate without belts, ha! What, what would that end up being like? And we're like talking about like, Oh, what was it? We were talking about seminars or something. We were talking about like seminar culture and just like, okay, well, you either A, didn't listen or B, just don't like the title. That's fine. But like, you know, just listen to the ideas and then, you know, if you disagree with them, that's fine. But, you know, start a productive conversation. And this is what I think that was. So one question I like to ask everyone, um, Jer, what are you working on this week with martial arts, I guess? martial arts with the kids or even when you're on business? Uh, well, I'm working this week on so many different things. Um, well, I suppose one of the things we're working on at the moment is helping um, retail organizations to deal with conflict that happens in their stores. And that, that's been an interesting can of worms to open this week because well, the issues with, um, we're having huge issues with knife crime here in the UK. Oh, wow. And so a, a shop um, a shop assistant, you know, approaching somebody who might be shoplifting, you know, stealing things, has to be so careful uh, when they do that because 
the prevalence of carrying knives and using them is so high that that becomes a really high stakes interaction. So that so part of my week this week has been sitting and thinking about how we how we best um, help organizations to do those things and to to plan for those situations and offer good advice to the staff about how to or how not to approach that person. So that's just oh, there's a long list, but that's one of them. It's the one that comes to mind. Cool, 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 cool. I'm I'm just playing with a I'm playing with recording my own training, so, um, okay. which is kind of. It's, it brutal. Is both, it's brutal, it's terrifying, it's also boring, because you kind of hate, like, it, it goes in that cycle of just like, well, how am I doing? Because, you know, I don't really have anybody um, really here to kind of lead me along. And so I'm just, you know, you look at it and you're just like, man, I look terrible. Turn off. And then it's, it's kind of, you have to forgive yourself enough to be helpful enough to yourself. At the same time being critical. So, yeah, kind yeah. of a couple different things but the the using video to um reflect is a really powerful tool so i'm going to say keep at it thank you jer i never get encouragement <laughs> from anyone <laughs> okay well um jer it's been a pleasure having you on um we hope to have you on again um Thanks for and thanks for thanks for being here, my friend. Um, especially doing this at kind of an odd time. That's all right. You... Thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me on, John. It's uh, we've had lots of chats over the years, but I think you're right in stimulating some conversation and um, getting people thinking. You know, it's it's uh, it's a journey we're all on. So I think this is a valuable service you're doing. And, and um, if, if you want me back again sometime, just give me a shout. You're, hey, door is always open, buddy. Door is always open, assuming that our time our, that our uh, time frames work out. Yeah, generally, generally. All right. Well, Jerry, thank you so much, and folks, thank you for listening. And um, this is John signing off. And Jerry. All right, folks. Thank you so much, and keep listening, and keep training.